0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now, on to the show.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mysteries surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Welcome to Red Run Blonde. This week's case contains two murders and a circus act, so it's not very often you can say that in a podcast. In 1992, a man was shot and killed inside his trailer. What followed after his death was lots of finger pointing, tales of abuse, and a crazy cast of characters. What's even more interesting is that the victim was also a murderer, plus, he wasn't just any ordinary man. This week, i discuss the murder of Lobster Boy, Grady Stiles. I was vaguely familiar with the tale of Lobster Boy, and then I saw a book by the great true crime writer Fred Rosen about him, and it piqued my interest even more. Then, when I saw that he was from Pittsburgh, where I live now, I knew I had to cover this. And after researching it, I wasn't disappointed at all. I loved Rosen's book, and I used it as a major resource in this episode. Grady Stiles was born on June 26, 1937 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Grady was born with a deformity that was called ectodactyly. It's a very rare condition in which the middle fingers are missing and the fingers on either side of where they should be are kind of fused together, forming what looks like lobster claws, hence the not so delicate term of lobster claw syndrome. This can also affect the feet and it's sometimes known as split-hand-split-foot malformation. And the Stiles family had a very long history with this genetic condition. In fact, Grady was the sixth in the family line going all the way back to the 1800s with the birth of William Stiles. Families with this condition have a 50-50 chance of passing it on to their offspring. Grady's father, Grady Sr., was also born with the condition and he made his living as a sideshow attraction and a traveling carnival where he was known as Lobster Man. And it wasn't long before he brought his son into the act. At the tender age of seven, Grady was added to the show with his father, foregoing any kind of normal childhood. Edna and Grady Sr. had two other children. Margaret was born without the malformation. But sadly, she died of a cerebral hemorrhage while selling tickets at the carnival. She was to have been married in just a few weeks. The other child, Sarah, was born with ectodactyly, and she opted to have her foot removed and replaced with an artificial one rather than use it to join the carnival. And although her marriage didn't last, she had three children who led very normal lives. The Stiles family was very poor, living in an area of Pittsburgh called the North Side. Back then, it was full of low-rent housing. I personally don't know too much about it, but I've had a lot of people tell me to avoid living there due to a high crime rate. So I'd imagine it was much worse when the Stiles were living there. And the neighborhood wasn't welcoming to the family at all. It was a very rough-and-tumble place, so young Grady was constantly subjected to torment. The family then made the decision to move permanently to a place called Gibsonton, Florida. Gibsonton is a very famous winter retreat for circus and carnival performers. The main reason was that the town offered this unique circus zoning law that let the residents keep elephants and circus trailers on their front lawns. At the time, it was also one of the few post offices in the country with a counter to accommodate dwarfs. It's also home to the Independent Showman's Association, which is a nonprofit group of people in the outdoor entertainment business. There's also a museum with items from the history of the carnival business. You can find really cool things like the very first Ferris wheel, as well as outfits worn by burlesque queen Gypsy Rose Lee, and very unique access to trailers used by carnival workers. Gibsonton provided more than just nice weather. It was a place where extraordinary people could have a community and not feel like freaks for once. Grady joined the circus full-time, and the father and son now billed themselves as the Lobster Family. The act was part of a 10-to-1 show, which meant 10 acts under one tent for one price. The Lobster Family being the headline act, so think of it as something like Coachello and They Were Radiohead. Grady joining the act with his father meant the only education he got was from the school of hard knocks. So you have to remember, he was only seven when he joined. His formal education just went out the window. He could read a little bit, but he could not write his name in cursive. But this was the reality of the time. Either live in a normal neighborhood where you're ridiculed or live in a community of peers and work. And young boys love to please their fathers, so Grady was most likely happy with the situation. He could be with his father and he could help provide for the family. Through the years, Grady really built up the strength in his arms. When he was out in public, he used a wheelchair, but around the house, he would get around just by dragging his body with his arms. So his upper arm strength grew to be immense. And this is something that will be mentioned later on in the podcast. As you can tell, Grady didn't let his deformities hinder his life. And that was especially true when it came to having a relationship. He had a brief marriage at the age of 17 that quickly led to divorce. And then he met Mary Teresa Herzog, and his life would be forever changed. Teresa was just a regular girl from Vermont who joined the carnival circuit to escape an abusive stepfather. For years, she had been sexually abused by him. She joined at the age of 17, and she never looked back. Initially, she had fallen for a guy named Jerry Plummer, who helped with the setup and takedown of the carnival. They had a very short-lived marriage, but that was very marred by physical abuse. Jerry once punched her so hard that he broke a bunch of teeth, and he even threw hot coffee on his young wife. When he found out she was pregnant, he attempted a homestyle abortion by pushing Teresa down the stairs. And when that proved unsuccessful, he just simply left. Teresa brought her daughter, Deborah, into the world by herself. So snagging Grady was an accomplishment for her. You may think it would be the other way around, but but Grady was doing very well for himself. And he had a lot of power within the carnival world. Teresa was the one trying to catch Grady's eye. She worked her way up from ticket show sales girl to the sideshow attraction. At first, she was what was called a blade box girl, one of the girls that gets into a box and then gets stuck with various swords. And then she worked her way up to something called the electrified girl. So while sitting in a chair, electricity would run through her. The crowds ate it up, especially when she would raise her hands, making electricity flow from her fingertips. She finally got Grady's attention. He courted her, treating her like a princess. And after the previous horrible treatment from men, Teresa loved it. They lived together for a short time before making it official. But the marriage was off to a rough start. The couple sadly suffered the deaths of two children very early on. Both died from pneumonia before even reaching a month old. The cause was thought to be the constant travel and the cold conditions while on the road. And then things went from bad to worse. Grady's father fell ill. He quit the carnival and he moved back to Pittsburgh. And then Grady would go back and forth from Florida to Pittsburgh to be with his ailing father. And it was around this time that he began to drink very heavily. So whether it was the stress of family issues or just something he did with his mom and dad wasn't clear. Regardless, he began drinking and he did not stop. And with that drinking began very abusive behavior. Gone was the sweet Grady, who had courted his wife and treated her so wonderfully. Together, Grady and Teresa had a daughter named Donna, and she was born without the affliction. Some people say that he was meaner to her because of this. Teresa was no longer alone in her suffering, and Grady beat the kids just as much. And they knew to try to avoid him when he was drunk, but he was drunk pretty much all the time. Despite all of this, the couple had another child, Kathy, in 1969. She was born with the same condition as her father. The children's memories of their father was being constantly drunk, his drink of choice being Seagram 7 and Coke. He'd wake up, most times on the floor, then head right out the door to the local bar. His kids did get a better education than he did, but he would pull them out of school early for the start of carnival season. And they would have to help out, selling tickets or performing other tasks. Their main job seemed to be avoiding his alcohol fueled beatings. I mentioned earlier how strong his arms were due to pulling his weight around. He used his arms, particularly his claws, to strike his family. His daughter Donna remembers one night in 1972 that was especially violent. She heard a loud bang, so she went running to the living room to find her mother being violently punched by her father. And Grady didn't stop until Teresa's breathing became shallow. The girls were absolutely terrified. And this was all too much for Teresa. There was one other incident of fighting and Teresa took the girls and left they ended up getting help from a guy named Harry Glenn Newman. He was known as Midget Man or the world's smallest man on the carnival circuit. Teresa knew him from years working with her husband. Glenn and Grady were just opposite ends of the spectrum. Glenn was a genuinely nice man who went out of his way to help people, especially Teresa and her children. He took them all the way to Ohio to live with his mother. So for the first time, these girls had a normal environment. There wasn't any drinking, fighting, or any kind of abuse. And things were good, until Grady stepped back into the picture. So what he did was file for a divorce without telling Teresa, which led the court to award full custody of the children to him. So these heart-stricken girls were taken back to Florida to live with their abusive father. Grady remarried quickly after his divorce was finalized. His wife was named Barbara, and she loved drinking as much as he did. She had a daughter from a previous marriage named Susie. Donna was forced to take care of all the kids while Barbara and Grady went out to drink. Eventually, the family relocated to the north side in Pittsburgh again. And shortly after the move, Barbara gave birth to Grady Stiles III. Like his father and the father before him, he was born with the same deformities. A while before Grady III was born, Teresa and Glenn had a son, Harry Glenn Jr., or Glennie as he was known. She was desperate to see her other children, though. One Christmas, she begged Grady to see them. He actually agreed to meet them at a bar and then to take them to his apartment to see the girls. Glenn and Teresa went, taking the baby with them, but it was a big mistake. Grady pulled a gun on them once they stepped inside the apartment, and their way was blocked by Paul Fishbaugh, known as the fat man at the carnival. Grady beat Teresa while Paul held a shotgun to Glenn. When he finally let them go, Teresa just gave up on trying to see the children. This all had a very lasting impact on his eldest daughter, Donna she grew to absolutely despise her father. He took her away from her mother. He forced her to watch the other kids while he drank. Soon, she would have even more reason to hate her father. Donna had met and fell in love with a guy named Jack Lane. It was a boy who went to her high school, and soon the 15-year-old ran away from her awful home life to be with him. Her father reportedly hired a private detective to find her, The young couple set a wedding date in 1978 for September. Donna lied to her father and said she was pregnant, hoping he'd relent and let them be married. You have to remember, she was underage, so she would need her family's permission to get married. After a very long talk, he agreed to finally let them get married. The day before the wedding was very full of preparations. Donna was to clean Grady's house for the reception. Despite the talk they'd had the night before, he tried once again to talk her out of the marriage. She had to listen to a barrage of complaints from her father. She was too young. He'd paid a private investigator lots of money to find her, costing him a lot and made him take on extra jobs to pay for it. But most of all, he loved her too much to lose her. Donna was still firm in her desire to marry Jack, though. Grady gave up and gave her the money to buy a wedding dress. The family, minus Grady, went to the local mall to pick out the dress. But when they returned, Donna noticed her father's wheelchair was missing. Her father said he wasn't sure what happened, but of course he was in a drunken stupor. He said it was probably stolen by someone in the neighborhood, but Donna thought it was maybe something as simple as the kids were outside playing with it. When she went out to search for it, Grady pulled Jack aside, wanting to talk privately. Donna didn't really think anything of her, thinking he was just going to give him one of the old, you better treat my daughter right speeches, and they all. One size
1: fits all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: While Donna and Barbara were outside looking for the wheelchair, they heard a very loud bang. Looking up to the house, they saw Jack stumble outside, holding his chest. He shot me, was all he said before he fell to the ground. Donna looked up to see her father looking out the window, smiling. She screamed at him, demanding to know why he would do such a thing. And all he said was, because I told you I would. Jack was rushed to Allegheny General Hospital with a wound to the chest, with a bullet exiting his shoulder. Grady was arrested. Detectives surmised that Grady had been sitting in his armchair and shot Jack as he attempted to leave the apartment. Barbara told the officers that her husband confessed to her that he didn't want Donna to marry the boy, and that's why he shot him. Unfortunately for detectives Dottelmeyer and Condemi, this was now a homicide, Jack was DOA at the hospital. On September 28, 1978, Grady Stiles was charged with the murder of Jack Lane. Grady hired attorney Anthony D'Cello after being led out on a $10,000 bond. Even at that early morning hour, Grady was drunk. Anthony told him he wouldn't represent him if he came in drunk again. It was too much of a liability. So from that point on, Grady was actually sober in his presence. He knew he was in hot water, the death penalty or life in prison, so he had to take this seriously. Anthony remembers the very first appointment well. He said both Barbara and Grady were dressed shabbily, Barbara especially. She was bruised all over and she smelled. Grady always made a big show when he met someone by shaking their hand, almost crushing it to show his strength, which he did with Anthony the Cello. It was absolutely bizarre. Grady's story about what happened was drastically different from what he initially told detectives. He told his attorney that Jack had bragged about betting his daughter, ridiculed him, and threatened him physically. The decision was made to play up his disability to gain sympathy. The district attorney, however, was convinced this was cold-blooded murder. Teresa and Glenn extended a helping hand to Barbara, giving her a plane ticket to stay with them in Dallas. But then the family eventually relocated back to Ohio. Donna and Barbara, however, made it back to testify against Grady. As character witnesses, Grady had Priscilla Bagnoro, the bearded lady, Paul Fishbaugh, his muscle when he beat Teresa up, and another carnival little person. Their testimony didn't sway any after the reports of Grady's abuse were revealed. He was found guilty of third-degree murder. The district attorney thought the jury felt sorry for him, not convicting him of first-degree murder. There was one major problem upon time for sentencing, though. The Western Penitentiary didn't want the problem of housing Grady. They knew because of his condition, he would need a guard on him constantly, and that was an expense they didn't want. So rather than serve any time in prison, Grady was given 15 years probation. He was only required to check in with a probation officer on a regular basis, and he could leave the state, which he promptly did, not paying a dime on the $14,000 he owed his attorney. With the money he saved not paying Anthony cello. He put together his own 10-act sideshow. Meanwhile, things weren't going so well for Teresa and Glenn. Glenn hurt his back and he was on disability. The money problems put a huge strain on the marriage, causing the two to divorce. And in a move that absolutely shocked Donna, Teresa got back together with Grady. Perhaps she needed the financial security or maybe she really did love and miss him. Donna did not understand, and she refused to support it. After leaving Glenn, Teresa moved the family to Okeechobee, Florida. Donna had met and fell in love with a guy named Joe Miles, becoming engaged. Grady courted Teresa in a manner similar to when they first got together. He was sweet to the whole family, even Glennie, Teresa and Glenn's child. So, to pacify her mother, Donna agreed to try to be civil and have a relationship with her father. Soon, the entire family began helping out with a 10-to-1 traveling act. Grady even gave Donna his blessing to Mary Joe in 1989. So, they all began to think that he had really changed. But what's that saying? A leopard doesn't change its spots. Grady began drinking again, and with the drinking came the abuse. Teresa insisted she couldn't leave him because no one would take care of Grady. In actuality, Teresa was afraid of him. When she threatened to leave him because of his drinking and abuse, he pressed his claw into her neck as if he would push it clear through. She knew it would not be so easy to leave him this time. Working at the traveling show wasn't easy for any of the family. They all began to have a growing resentment towards Grady. Donna's new husband, Joe, began working with the show. He really did not get along with a guy named Merman the Magician, who was a good friend of Grady's. Their shows were side by side and in very hot competition with each other. And there were lots of fights, and Grady fired and rehired Joe. Merman claimed he saw Teresa skimming money from the ticket box. And Glenn Jr. was also not a fan of Merman. He had worked at the carnival as the human blockhead, driving nails into his nose as a sideshow act. He argued with him and wanted Merman fired. But Grady always sided with his friend over his family. Glenn got so mad over this, he reportedly punched a tree. So there was abuse and growing resentment. Enough for the family to want Grady dead. Marco Eno, who worked for the carnival, said Teresa asked him to kill Grady, but he refused. Glenn Jr. got in touch with a friend named Chris Wyant, who lived down the block. Chris had a juvenile record, and he bragged about participating in drive-by shootings. He was just bad news. And when he met with Glenn, he brought his friend Dennis Cowell. Dennis didn't exactly know what the meeting was about. He just assumed this was a drug deal. In reality, Chris was agreeing to kill Greedy. At first, he only asked for the sum of $300, but eventually it was settled on $1,500. November 30th was the agreed hit date. Chris warned the others if anything went wrong and they tried to blame him, he would have a bullet for everyone in the house. Glenn reportedly got cold feet and tried to call the whole thing off, but Chris insisted on doing the job. He said he'd already spent the money. According to Glenn, he told his mother of the plan. Around 11 p.m., Glenn and Teresa left Grady in his recliner, where he was watching the movie Ruby, starring Danny Aiello. Chris snuck in the back door, dressed in the clothes that he had already spent his kill money on. Nike shoes, a black leather jacket, a Raiders hat, t-shirt, and jeans. He knew the house very well, having been in it many times. As he entered the living room, Grady noticed him yelling, Get the fuck out of my house. Chris got to the hallway, turned, and aimed the gun. The first shot entered Grady's brain and killed him. But just to be sure, Chris shot two more. When Grady was shot, Glenn and Teresa had been over at Cindy's trailer. They came running out when they heard the shot's. And they were joined by Marco Eno, the man that Teresa had previously propositioned to kill her husband. So together, Marco and Glenn entered Grady's trailer. There they found Grady slumped over, covered in blood that oozed from his head wounds. Detective Michael Willett was assigned to the case. Grady III, or Little Grady as he was known, was one of the first people he questioned. Little Grady claimed to have slipped through the whole thing even though he was present in the trailer when his father was shot. Willet was surprised at how calm the teenager seemed and it was pretty much the same story with every family member he interviewed. I mean, no one seemed to mourn the loss of their patriarch. And it was a point that stuck out to Willet and his partner, Fig Feriguro. To them, it all seemed very convenient that Glenn... Teresa and Cindy were all together in another trailer at 11 p.m. at night. So after interviewing others who knew the family, including Marco Eno, they found out about Grady's abusive behavior and excessive drinking. When they found out that there was a life insurance policy, they knew that they had their motive. The detectives brought Glenn in for questioning, and it didn't take too long for him to tell them about the plot to kill Grady. Grady. Next came Teresa. She pleaded with the men to leave her family out of it, that she would take the blame. Grady was abusive and she needed out. Divorce was not an option. He would have killed her. After her arrest came Chris. All three were charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and held without bond. A judge ruled that all three were to be tried separately. Chris Wine was tried first. He was found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder in the first degree and guilty of murder in the second degree with a firearm. He remained expressionless upon hearing the verdict. Attorney Arnold Levine represented Teresa, and he did it pro bono. He planned to use the battered wife defense, but, in order for that defense to be presented, Teresa would have to take the stand which was a risky move. She would have to convince the court that she was in imminent danger from Grady to cause the hit to be placed. She recounted many tales of physical abuse to her and her children. One tale was especially brutal. While Kathy his daughter was pregnant she tried to intervene one time when Grady was beating her mother Greedy pushed her out of a chair, causing her placenta to separate and knocked her teeth out. Other incidents included little Greedy getting thrown into a wall and Teresa being beaten with a belt buckle. And that was just a few of the many that were mentioned. Teresa told of how he bragged about getting away with murder before and how he could do it again. She was terrified. Another time, Grady accused her of being with another man when she got home late from work. He took a knife out, which he tried to shove into her vagina. She said she was bruised all over her legs and she had trouble sitting for days. Teresa kept a will and let everyone know where it was because she was so afraid of being killed by her husband. The testimony from Teresa and her family was not effective, though. The judge would not allow the battered spouse syndrome defense. And in a very interesting turn of events, author Fred Rosen got involved in the trial. So there was a video presented of Grady and Little Grady wrestling that had been introduced earlier. It looked like the man was brutalizing the child, but there was no sound to the tape. However, Fred Rosen had a tape with sound, and it told a very different story. He'd been writing his book on the case when he came in possession of the tape, On it, you could hear both of the guys laughing. So it was obviously just a fun time that was being twisted to look like something else. The prosecution asked that the tape be allowed to be entered as evidence, and the jury was allowed to view it. It had an effect. The jury found Teresa guilty of manslaughter with a firearm and conspiracy to commit murder in the first degree. Before Glenn went to trial in 1994, he was offered a deal. If he pled guilty to what his mother was convicted of, then he would get the same sentence. But rather than take the deal, Teresa told him to turn it down, so he went to trial. He was convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. Glenn was sentenced to life in prison. Teresa got 12 years with five years probation. Teresa and Chris served their time and were released. Chris was released in 2009 and Teresa in 2000. Glenn, however, is still serving life in prison. Fred Rosen wrote in the afterword of his book that Teresa has a cemetery plot reserved for her next to Grady. So that was the murder of lobster boy Grady Stiles. I don't think he was a good person, but I'm not sure anyone deserves to be murdered. Then again, I've never been in a physically abusive relationship. It's a very hard call. Definitely check out Fred Rosen's book Lobster Boy. Like I said, it was the major source of my info for the podcast, and it's a great read. He includes a lot more about the trials, which I didn't include. If you'd like to check the podcast out a little bit more, look for me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. In very exciting news, I'll be at the very first True Crime Podcast Festival in July of next year. There's going to be lots of great podcasts there, so I'm really excited. Tickets are available now if you're interested. And as always, if you'd like some Red Ramblon merch, go to tpublic.com. I want to thank everyone for listening and catch you next week.